Our passage this morning comes from Matthew 26, verses 47 to 56. Matthew 26, 47 to 56. And as we continue our journey through the last hours of Jesus' life here on earth, listening to the sounds of the passion, we pick up in, in Matthew 26, 47 to, to 36. Last week, we listened to Jesus' prayer in the garden as he wept. We followed that through to realizing that we are the ones that caused those tears to fall. And we recognized that it was because of his love for the Father and for us that he followed through with God's plan and drank from the cup of wrath. Today, we pick up right where we left off. Jesus has just warned his disciples that the time for sleep is over. They've all been taking their naps. They've been resting that evening. Time for sleep is over. His betrayer has arrived. We pick up in Matthew 26, verses 47 to 56. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? At that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your word today, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. pray this in your name. Amen. Jack is a, is a young, poor boy living with his widowed mother and a dairy cow on a farm cottage. The cow's milk was their only source of income. When the cow stops giving milk, Jack's mother tells him to take her to the market to be sold. And on the way, Jack meets a bean dealer who offers magic beans in exchange for the cow. And Jack makes the trade. When he arrives home without any money, his mother becomes angry and disenchanted, throws the beans on the ground, and sends Jack to bed without dinner. During the night, the magic beans cause a gigantic beanstalk to grow outside Jack's window. The next morning, Jack climbs the beanstalk to a land high in the sky. He finds an enormous castle and sneaks in. Soon after, the castle's owner, a giant, returns home. He smells that Jack is nearby. 
And he speaks a rhyme. Fee, fi, fo, fum. I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he live or be he dead, I'll grind his bones to make my bread. Fee, fi, fo, fum. How those words must have sounded to little Jack hiding in the giant's castle. But more than the words, the sounds of those feet hitting the ground. Thump, thump, thump. Though the voice is scary, the sounds of the feet tell of the thing to be feared. The impending doom is getting closer and closer. And while a giant can make a lot of noise with his approach and the stomping of his feet, and we can have an emotional response to that noise, namely fear, how does the noise made by the feet of many people affect us? The stomping of many feet. The foretelling that a crowd is on the way. In some cases, we may not give it a second thought because it's, inspect- it's expected. In fact, it, it might be weird if there weren't the sounds of many feet. Like take the subway in the city, for example. If there wasn't the sound of many feet getting on and off the trains in the middle of the day, it might be a little unnerving. Be a little weird if it, if it wasn't busy, if it wasn't the sound of commotion, the sound of, of people, of feet getting on and off the trains, walking by, going around us. And at the same time, when it's not expected like in the quiet of a garden in the middle of the night, it can, it can be pretty unnerving. Why have the people come? Why are they here? This is not the time or the place for a gathering of this many people. It's, it's not the market. It's not the temple. Why are they here? We read in, in verse 50 of our text today, Jesus said to them, said to him, friend, do what you came to do. They came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. They came for Jesus. But they didn't come like the crowds that had followed him the last few years. They didn't come to be taught and to be fed. They came to seize him. To bring him before the chief priests and the elders. They came to judge him. (laughs) They came to proclaim that that he was a heretic, to claim that he was a liar, and they came at night. They came at a time when he wouldn't have the protection of the crowds. And in their coming, they proclaimed that he was not God. In their coming, they proclaimed that they did not believe he was who he said he was. That they did not believe that he was who he said he was. They did not believe. And their lack of belief led them to action. The stomping feet was the sound of persecution. Now, persecution comes in many shapes and sizes. In some countries, persecution takes a very physical form, where we see Christians imprisoned, tortured, and even beheaded for their faith. Which begs the question, Is the church in America persecuted? Do we face persecution here in the land of the free and the home of the brave? 
For help answering that question, I I turned to, to Kevin DeYoung. He's an author as well as the pastor of Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina, and a member of the Gospel Coalition Council. In an article for thegospelcoalition.org, DeYoung argues that even if we should argue that persecution takes place in the United States, that it's important to be clear that we all have it pretty good most of the time. We aren't getting beheaded and we aren't being thrown to lions. It's legal to proclaim Christ crucified here. It's legal to convert to Christianity here. It's important to remember that conditions for Christians here in the States are much better than for Christians in some other parts of the world. DeYoung also cautions that when troubles, when trials do come due to our faith, it's important not to throw pity parties. It's wise and prudent not to share public praise or public criticism on social media, Facebook, Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, and the like. Christians are meant to carry a cross, but we are not meant to complain about it. But that doesn't really answer the question, does it? Are Christians in the U.S. persecuted? DeYoung has this to say. Let's not minimize the extent to which traditional Christianity and traditional Christians are facing increasing intolerance in this country. The fines, the lawsuits, the jobs lost, the public disdain, these are not figments of the imagination. No amount of PR work is going to rescue the church from being thought by some as backwards and bigoted. You can't out-nice your way and out-justice your way into cultural acceptance. Not if you hold traditional biblical views on gender and sexuality. And it does not help the church or our fellow Christians to insist that we kindly acquiesce to the culture's demands. We have an opportunity to defend the faith as we defend each other. And I, I agree with him. We are right to downplay American persecution in the light of what so many other Christians face. But let's not make the word mean less than it means in the New Testament. In the Greek, the word for persecution is dioko, which means to harass someone, especially because of beliefs. This can mean violence towards a person, and many times in the New Testament, this is the case. But it can also mean verbal harassment. It can also mean lawsuits against your business because of your beliefs. It can mean peer pressure and name-calling at school. It can mean isolation at work. How do we respond to persecution today? How do you respond to persecution? That's a huge question. And there are going to be a variety of answers. For some of us, it draws us back into the word. For some, it pushes us into the safety net of our relationships, both with other believers and with God. For some of us, it causes us to question what we think and we know. At different times, we will experience different reactions. We aren't locked into a way of responding to persecution, to hard times. But as you ponder the question of how you respond, let me follow it up with another question. How did the disciples respond? Jesus stood there and confronted his accusers. He knew why they had come. He knew what the result of their coming would be. But how did the disciples respond? The end of verse 56 reads, 
Then all the disciples left him and fled. They, they ran. The disciples responded to the stomping feet of persecution with some stomping feet of their own. Do we ever run in the face of persecution? When times get hard, when, when people say things about us that, that aren't true, or, or maybe they are twisted to sound true, or hey, maybe they are true. When we are told that we are bigots and hypocrites because we stand on the word of God as an errant and the final authoritative guide for faith and conduct, do we run? Do we run? Do we leave behind what we know is right, what we know is true, and and run? Instead of meeting our accusers head on like Jesus did, do we run in the face of persecution, run from the possibility of being mocked? Sometimes I do. In my shame, in my inability to handle my emotions and my thoughts, you know, sometimes I run. I just want to be out of the situation. Sometimes I, I don't know how to deal with the confrontation between the world and my beliefs, and so I cave. I turn my back when I should face my accusers, and I run when I should stand my ground. Some, sometimes I run. So if we have run, or how about if we have run? Not because of persecution from outside, but because of our own doubts, fears, and sin from the inside. While some of us feel shame because we have run from persecution, what about those of us who have just run from God? I'm not good enough for God. I keep failing Him. I can't understand how a a God of love could let this world be such a terrible place. God could never forgive the amount of sin that I have committed. And it wouldn't be fair or right of me to ask him to. I've outgrown my belief. I'm I'm too smart to be tied down to such outlandish beliefs anymore. There are many reasons, many excuses that we concoct, that we come up with, that cause us to run from God. And after we have run, what then? Whether from persecution or from God himself, what then? When we have succumbed to sin, be it doubt or sinful rebelliousness, what then? The sound of the giant's footsteps and the voice booming fee fi fo fum sent fear through the veins of young jack hiding in the castle but for me growing up it was a whole different kind of emotion you see before i knew the story of jack and the beanstalk i had encountered a different giant at night in our house mom and dad would send us all upstairs to get changed into our pajamas And they'd give us a little bit of time, and then we'd hear the sounds that we couldn't wait to hear. My father's heavy footsteps would pound slowly up the stairs, 
and the words fee, fi, fo, fum would echo up the staircase and the landing and into our rooms. And while for Jack that noise brought fear, for us that noise brought excitement. It brought anticipation. Those stomping feet meant that our father was coming. It meant that dad was coming to love on us, to tickle us, to play with us before he put us to bed. He would wrap us up in his arms and hold us and tell us that he loved us. He would tuck us into bed and we knew that we were safe. The stomping of those feet did not bring fear. They brought joy. As we run from God over the sound of our own feet, we hear the voice or the sound of his feet pounding alongside us. The voice that we hear is not the voice of an angry God chasing us with judgment. It is not the voice of a giant seeking to devour us for abandoning him. It is the voice of a loving father calling out to his children to come back to him, to repent, to be forgiven. Because he wants relationship with them. Because he loves them. God does not catch us and bring us back in chains to be bound to his will. He runs alongside us, never leaving us. He calls to us. He calls us back into relationship with him because he loves us. And he loves us so very much. As Eric read this morning in Romans 8, just the last verses there, 38 to 39. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is nothing, nothing that can come between God and his love for you. Nothing. He will always love you. Always. You cannot outrun the love of God. If you are running this morning, I pray that you would hear the voice of the Lord. Feel his footsteps stomping alongside you. And that you would answer the call of his voice to come back into relationship with him. There's nothing that separates us from the love of God. There is nothing that any of us could have done that would stop God from loving us. He continues to call us, molding us by the sound of his word, by the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives. None of us is a finished product. Each of us continues to fail, continues in our own way to run. And God is there every time running beside us, calling out to us. Though we may feel shame for the sin we have committed and the fear we have given into, God is not ashamed to call you his child. He longs to call you his child. He sent Jesus to die in your place so that he could call you his child. So that by faith, because of your faith, you would be part of the family of God. As you leave here today, know that God loves you. 
that his eye is always upon you. Not because he wants to see if you've screwed up. He knows that you're going to screw up. No, his eye is on you because he cares for you. Because he made you. Because he wants to be in relationship with you. Because he loves you. Rest in that. Rest in the love of God. The stomping of his feet and the calling of his voice. What a wonderful, amazing, gracious God we serve. Amen.